If you uh, brought your Bibles with you today, would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5? And if you didn't bring your Bibles, the passage for today's sermon is, of course, in your bulletin or on page 1016 of those uh, pew Bibles, if you would like to follow along there. Uh, We have uh, a passage before us today that, as Jack already alluded to, is one of the great passages instructing elders in the church, one of the great passages on, if you will, Presbyterianism in the church. But I'm actually going to work the passage uh, today from the, the, the end of it back up to the beginning, because I think the end provides really what is the, uh, the main portion of it for all of us as the people of God. But to set up the context for us just a little bit, I want to remind us, if you, if you were with us, or tell you if you weren't with us, what we saw in verse 17 of chapter 4, which is something we read together last week, we, we found this phrase, a rather sobering phrase, in 17, it says this, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Judgment begins at the household of God. That's a rather daunting thing for Peter to say. We typically, of course, want to think of the church as a refuge, or to put it in kind of Old Testament terminology, a a city of refuge. The church is a place of safety, a a rock, a fortress into which we, under which we find our shelter and our coverage. We like to think of it that way instead of as a a bullseye, a, a painted target for the judgment of God, the the epicenter, the ground zero for the judgment of God. But that's what Peter said there. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. But Peter had encouragement to us even as he said that. And here was his encouragement. He wanted to say to us that, yes, judgment begins with the household of God, but in fact, that fiery judgment that is going to begin with us is not a destructive judgment, primarily. It is a destructive judgment for those who do not know the Lord, for those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But for the people of God, this is the kind of judgment that we need. It's actually the kind of judgment that we want. It is a refiner's fire that begins in the household of the Lord. It's a purifying kind of fire and judgment that is actually good for us because it conforms us more and more to the life and union with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Still, here's the reality. Fire is fire. And so Peter closes this letter. As he closes it, he turns now to the household of God. He turns to where this judgment is beginning to her leadership and to her members. And in this chapter, this final chapter of the letter, he gives us two fundamental, you can call them attitudes, attributes, dispositions, mindsets, however you'd like to think of them, two fundamental attitudes that should characterize the people of God seeking to live well in this world. And I'm very thankful to Edmund Clowney, who's got a commentary on 1 Peter that uh, I I think just really puts this clearly in terms of understanding this last chapter. Here here are the two things that Peter's going to give to us in chapter 5. One, he's going to call us to humility towards others. And two, 
to a bold resistance to evil. Humility towards others and a bold resistance to evil. We're going to focus on the first of those this week. Hear God's word to you. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear from you today and that we would each hear it, uh, that this church would hear it, that the elders would hear it, and that each of us would hear individually you speaking to us today and collectively as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. If we desire to live faithfully in this world as strangers in the world, as aliens, as exiles, as sojourners in this world, as Peter has called us. And if we would live faithfully, not just as Christians, not just as Christian families, but as the church, as the household of God, and if we are to endure well the suffering that Peter's been speaking of, the fiery trials, the judgment of God, if elders want to shepherd well those under their care, if members are to be good stewards of the gifts that God has given to them, if we long to dwell in the eternal glory of God, and if we want to receive the ongoing gift of God's grace, then humility is the path. Humility is the path. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you are an elder in the church, humility is the path. If you are a deacon in the church, humility is the path. If you are a Sunday school teacher, a nursery worker, a committee member, a committee chair, if you're on WIC, if you're a Bible study leader, humility is the path. If you are not any of those, if you are younger in the church, humility is the path. If you are a person in the church, period. Forget all the categories that I just mentioned. If you are a person 
in the church of Jesus Christ, period, then humility is the path. Jesus said this, I put it on the front of your bulletin, all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And as Peter closes the section that I just read for us, he writes pictorially for us, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Put it on like a garment. Take off the finery, take off the stuff that separates and get down to work. And put on the work clothes when it comes to relating to one another. Now, please understand, this is pictorially, it's metaphorically, it doesn't mean you should have a certain necessary type of clothing. It doesn't mean that we have a certain type of uh, demeanor, that our demeanor as someone who is humble is mopey. It doesn't necessarily mean uh, that we have just a hangdog expression or uh, that we have puppy dog eyes about us. To humble ourselves, biblically speaking, is to consider ourselves rightly. To consider ourselves in the first place as creatures, as creatures, of, as those who owe everything to the faithful creator. That's where we end in chapter or verse 19, right before what I just read for us. Those who owe everything and have received everything from our faithful creator. And biblically speaking, humility is also rooted in not only the fact that we are the creature and not the creator, but humility is also rooted in the fact that we have become a rebellious creature, that we are a sinful creature as well. So not only do we receive everything, but we deserve, in and of ourselves at least, nothing. But then in terms of relating it, not just to God, but to one another as well, to be humble is to look at the people around you with honor, with value, with interest, with interest and concern for their welfare, for their value, for their well-being. It is to look for opportunities to consider the interests of others above your own interests. It is to look for opportunities to serve where we've been called, where we have been gifted, and where we've been given opportunity as well. Peter is writing to this group of people from Rome in the middle of the Roman Empire, he's writing to people who are on the edges of the empire, but he's writing into a culture that knew all about the idea of honor and shame. Honor and shame in this world in particular. And they knew what they were supposed to do as it related to this world. You were in this world to seek after honor. Now, to a certain extent, honor would be something that would come to you by birthright, by virtue of who you were born as, but you could parlay that as much as possible in terms of developing your honor in this world. Through deeds, you could do that. You could jockey for position by 
putting other people down by disassociating from people who were of a lower status than you in particular, by associating with people who were of a higher status than you. So you avoid shame at all costs. You avoid anything that smacks of humility as dishonorable. And instead, you seek to position yourself aright. Now, the disciples clearly had this idea as well. We read one of the texts from uh, just before the crucifixion of our Lord, and, and, and we're almost just amazed at the audacity of the question. Right? Can my sons sit at your right hand and at your left hand? I'd like them to have first position. And of course, we could turn to other Gospels in which the disciples are found to be arguing amongst one another with respect to who's the greatest. Right? They, they, they had this idea, even though they were Jewish living in the Roman culture, they nevertheless had this idea of position and of rank and of how do I get to the highest place because that's where I ought to be. Peter had this idea as well, and it's why he said to Jesus, he said, and we've talked about this a number of times, he said to Jesus, you shall never suffer. Why? Why does he not want Jesus to suffer? Because he sees that as something that is shameful, as something that is dishonoring, as something that would be characteristic of humiliation as opposed to exaltation, and that's not going to happen to you. And that's why Peter says to Jesus, you will never wash my feet. You'll never do it. You know why you'll never do it? You'll never do it. Because that would be a humiliation to you. You taking that low position would be humiliating to you. And I won't have it. And Peter says, listen, even if everybody else walks away, I will never betray you. Why? Because he wants to be honorable. And he wants the Lord to be honored as well in the followers around him. So it's an idea of this shame avoidance, of this humility avoidance that permeated the culture around them. Of course, unless it was the kind of showy humility that you are doing to actually try to secure some honor. Roman culture got the idea of shame and honor, but they had it all mixed up. And so Peter, following his Lord and ours, recasts the idea. He recasts and he recalibrates the idea of humility and the idea of that which is shameful and that which is honoring. He recasts it in terms of the timing and in terms of the substance, as we see in our text. The Romans, as for timing, looked for honor now. They looked for it in this present life. But Peter says to the elders of the church, and really to all of us as well, the glory, in verse 1, he's talking about the glory that will be revealed. It's not here yet. It will be revealed. And in verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. From the very beginning of this letter, Peter has been trying to shift our horizons 
away from that which is immediately in front of us to that which is eternal so that we then know how to act in the right now, in this particular moment. You'll recall that right at the beginning of this letter, he talks, you know, here he's obviously talking about the uh, elders in particular and that unfading crown. But don't feel left out because the inheritance was promised for all of us back in chapter 1 as soon as the letter started. The inheritance for everyone is promised who are in Christ Jesus. It is being kept for you. And at the proper time, at the proper time, if we went on to read further in this text, God will exalt us. But now, now is the time for humility or for what the world thinks of as shameful. But for Peter, as for Jesus, it's not only the timing that is being reset here, it's also the substance of what is to be considered honorable and what is to be considered shameful or humiliating. Peter says that what is actually honorable is what the world thinks of as shameful, namely, humble and faithful service to the faithful creator while doing good. That's what is ultimately honorable. Upholding the law of God, the letter has spelled this out for us, and I won't rehearse the entirety of the letter, but if you were to ask the question from this letter, what is honoring to God? Well, from our section, being gentle in leadership, being subject to leadership, whether that's the leadership that exists in the state in the sphere of labor, in the sphere of the family, in the sphere here in this passage of the church. Subjection is honoring. Humility is honoring. Suffering according to the will of God is honorable. Suffering and enduring sorrows unjustly while being mindful of God is honorable. Serving is honorable. Now, to the world, that list of what is honorable seems upside down, right? It seems the other way around, especially in the Roman culture. All of those things that have been enjoined by Peter upon us throughout this letter, they seem rather sad. They seem rather pathetic. Now, let me just say one thing, and we said this earlier, and I just want us to keep it in mind as we talk this way, that sometimes, at least, there will be apparent overlap, overlap or uh, a, a coinciding between what the world sees as honorable and what God sees as honorable. It won't always be the case that in every single circumstance that those are two different things. This is our Father's world. There are vestiges of his image in the people that are scattered all around this world. So every once in a while, there's a dovetail. And we agree, that's a shameful thing or that's an honorable thing. For the most part, though, that won't be the case. When it happens, great. Glad that it happens periodically. But for the most part, those things won't be the same. Don't expect it. Peter is encouraging us, as he has done already in this letter, towards a mindset of humility. One of the authors that I've read quite a bit of during this uh, study of 1 Peter is a man by the name of Joel Green. And Joel Green is talking about this kind of recasting 
of our own minds towards a mindset of humility. And he writes this, and I think this is just great about this disposition or mindset. Forgive me, it's a little bit long, but frankly, I think it's easy to follow, so I don't think you'll have any uh, problem with it. Green writes this. Peter thus concerns himself and his audience with a frame of mind or pattern of thinking that belongs to persons who have done with positioning themselves in the world's social hierarchy in order to ensure that they're treated with appropriate esteem by their social underlings. When so much of life is directed by the compass of social stratification with honor and shame, the North and South Poles, the consequences of this metamorphosis, the metamorphosis to a humble mindset, are practically infinite. The form of one's greeting, such gestures as the averting of the eyes and the raising of the chin, the range of one's information sharing, the material and color of one's clothing, the nature of economic exchange with others, one's treatment before the courts, possibilities for friendship and matchmaking, invitations to share a meal and the quality of food to be placed before others, the obligation to truth-telling assumptions about seating arrangements, who can speak to whom and under what conditions. The list of affected expectations and interactions is practically endless. All these forms of behavior are set aside in favor of a single disposition within the family of believers to comport oneself in ways that esteem others. Everything is impacted when that becomes our disposition. The littlest things that we might not think are impacted are actually impacted when we, in humility, count others as more important or even better than ourselves. The sphere of the church should be characterized by that kind of humility. It's the closing thing in our passage. Now, perhaps one might draw an inference like this. If, in fact, everybody in the church is supposed to be humble and treat one another with humility, then why would there be, in fact, any leadership at all, any exercise of authority, any exercise of shepherding or oversight at all within the church if all of us are supposed to be humble towards one another. Well, Peter doesn't take that position. He doesn't take a position that rejects the structure that God has provided for the church. Instead, he says, no, 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 God has provided structure. God has provided leadership for the church. And in humility, we are to follow that. In humility, we are to embrace that kind of leadership. And so Peter then instructs the elders of the church. Peter humbles himself. He doesn't call himself here an apostle as he did when he began the letter. He identifies himself as a fellow elder, and he exhorts as a fellow elder. He exhorts the elders of these churches as one who sat at the feet of Jesus and heard the threefold question from Jesus. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? If you do, then here's what I want you to do. I want you to take care of me. 
I want you to tend. I want you to watch over my sheep. I want you to watch over my flock. And Peter now passes on the commission that he received from Jesus. The elders here of the church have two great responsibilities that are given to them. The the responsibilities are to shepherd, shepherd the flock of God, and to provide oversight to the flock. Now, those things could be broken down when you talk about the shepherding. It is the feeding of the sheep and the caring for the sheep, the teaching, the preaching ministry of the church. It is praying for, it is loving the people of the church, it is protecting, it is disciplining as needed, and it is leading as needed. And then Peter qualifies that. He qualifies it with three things. In humility, should that be done, not under compulsion, not for shameful gain, and not in some kind of a domineering way. But instead, in humility, you do it willingly, you do it eagerly, and you do it by example. And recognizing that this, that you, that we are God's flock. We're not any one person's flock. We're not only any one session's flock. But we're doing this under Jesus, who is, in fact, the chief shepherd. And so you ask the question, all right, elders, how did Jesus shepherd the flock? How did he do it? But Peter's already answered that. He already answered it back in chapter 2. He wrote this, He himself, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Jesus, the shepherd of our souls, shepherds our souls in humility. How does he shepherd us? He shepherds us by suffering on our behalf, by enduring shame on our behalf, the shame of the cross, the humiliation of the cross. He shepherds us by humbling himself, by taking the form of a servant and becoming obedient to the point of death. And because he did that, he was exalted by God at the proper time. And that which appeared to be only shameful, a death on a cross, was seen to be that which is most honorable. Elders are to shepherd the church in and under Jesus, and in a manner like his, in that kind of humility. Again, Edmund Clowney uh, puts it this way, elder shepherds are not cowboys. Cowboys is kind of a cool metaphor, cool way to think about things, but that's not elders. That's not how elders in the church are to think of themselves. Instead, as shepherds. And then in verse 5, so he's given instructions to the elders of the church, but in verse 5, he pivots. He pivots it and says in verse 5, he goes from the leadership, likewise then, you who are younger. And he says, now, younger is an interesting word here, and we can try and figure out what he means by this. In one sense, younger could just mean younger people in the church who might be prone to, uh, you know, want to do their own thing instead of listening to the elders of the church. So it, however you define younger could be younger. 
It could also be, in context, just a way of saying those who aren't elders. Those of you who aren't elders in the church are by definition, and here to, to emphasize the point, saying younger. I, 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 I'm not sure how to decide between those two. I'm inclined more towards the former than the latter. But instead, the exhortation is exactly, regardless, what we would expect, because it's already been stated to us in the three spheres that he looked at earlier. He looked at three spheres, right? He looked at the sphere of the state and the sphere of labor and the sphere of the family, and he says here the exact same thing that he said in each one of those, be subject. Be subject. Peter knows that there is something in all of us, self-included, that chafes against leadership. And it doesn't matter who that leadership is. The leadership could be Moses. Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. And it chafed against Moses' leadership. Jesus was the most, most humble man on the face of the earth. And they chafed against the leadership of Jesus as well. And so Peter is saying here, if we put these two things together, what we said about the elders and then what we said about the, those who were younger, Peter's saying that shepherds and elders are to show humility in how they lead, and congregations and young people are to show humility in how they follow. And in case there's any confusion, then as we've already seen, the final phrase wraps up everybody. All of you. All of you. And we referenced it before, earlier in the letter. All y'all. Close yourselves with humility. Thomas Schreiner says this, Humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. Humility is the oil. I want to close us today by uh, making another connection with uh, the passage that is before us and the one that we read earlier from John 21 after the resurrection where Peter, uh, where Jesus is talking to Peter. Perhaps this is simply an incidental connection, but I still think it will help us. Peter tells us, in the passage that is before us here in 1 Peter 5, to clothe ourselves with humility. Okay? Clothe yourselves with humility. I want to suggest to us that apart from being clothed, our clothing being in Christ himself, that clothing ourselves with humility is not just some kind of a tall order, but it is an insurmountably Paul, order, if I say to you, clothe yourselves with humility. I've quoted it before. One of my favorite quotes from Benjamin Franklin's uh, autobiography is where he says, with respect to humility, I achieved much more of the appearance of this virtue than I did the reality of it. Clothe yourselves, though, with humility is what Peter is saying. We need not only the clothing of Christ, which is a towel wrapped around the waist. But we need to be clothed by Christ if we are to do this. And so now to bring it to John 21, Jesus said to Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself. But when you were older, someone else will dress you. 
Someone else will dress you, and someone else will take you where you do not want to go. Now, we know because it's interpreted for us right in that text. We know what's being referred to there. What's being referred to are the fiery trials that Peter is going to undergo, particularly as it comes to his death. Peter is going to experience those. Someone else is going to dress him. That's what happened to his Lord. That's what happened to the Lord at the end. They undressed him. They redressed him. They stripped him. Someone else is going to clothe you. But the idea here is that those very fiery trials, that suffering that we have seen is under and according to the will of God. Suffering is part of the way that the chief shepherd clothes his sheep with humility. The suffering that you undergo is part of Jesus, the chief shepherd, saying, put this on. Put this on. It's going to hurt. And it's going to heal. Because it's going to grant you the gift of humility, of lowness. It was true for the shepherd. Jesus learned obedience by the things that he suffered. It's true for the sheep. True for the shepherd. True for the sheep. That's how humility grows inside of us. Peter says then, I was and am a witness to the sufferings of Christ. That's where this started. Peter says, listen, I was there. Now, he wasn't there for the whole time, was he? Because he ran away. But he was there enough. He was there enough to be a witness to the sufferings of Christ. And he's saying to the elders of the church and to the members of the church, Jesus put on humility. Do that. Put on Christ. Put on humility in his name. That when he is revealed, we may also be partakers in his glory. For now, there's parallel terms here that were in the section before this one and this one. For now, Peter says, rejoice insofar as you share in the sufferings of Christ. Okay? Now come to this passage. This is the same word, same root word. It's just a different word in our English translation. As well as a partaker, a sharer in the glory that is to be revealed. It's the same idea. Right now, you share in the sufferings. So that when the glory of Christ is revealed, you may share likewise in Christ's glory. Verse 6, we didn't read it. I'll close with this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Lord, this is an order impossible for us, apart from the working of your Spirit clothing us with Christ. And so we ask that you would do that. Lord, make us low. Keep us low. Help us to esteem you. Help us to esteem others who are around us, to think much of them in humility. And then at the proper time, Lord, at the proper time, 
we in you, by your promise, will be exalted. Help us to live it and believe it. In your name, amen.